1: Now, it's not that teams can't or shouldn't have long-term plans. It's just that the soccer fan and the customer, they care about the here and now. And the long-term plan in MLS in particular, that doesn't play. If you can't even compete, then go away until you can. You can't ask fans and customers to care about a long-term plan. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast. When we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about the quote unquote long-term plan approach in Major League Soccer and in soccer in general. We'll have our Mossy Makes the Case segment where Mossy's gonna talk about Bayern's can't beat 'em, join 'em' mentality. We'll be answering your questions in our hashtag ask Alexi segment, going back in time to watch some special games that you weren't at. And so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox Soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you? I greet you from the great state of Florida. I am on the road once again this week, but we are certainly bringing you the State of the Union podcast. How are you doing, my friend?
2: I am good. I'd hate to hijack the opening segment again, but I did have an eventful few days in Mexico.
1: That's right. We heard that you were going down for a wedding and you were very concerned about, what's that team that you follow again? Um, uh, the, the, uh, Wolverines. the Wolverines of Michigan, right? Correct. And they were playing in a, uh, in a basketball game uh, and you were very concerned, as was the groom, as to whether you were going to get to watch the game. Were you able to?
2: Well, we got smoked on Thursday night by Texas Tech, so there was no conflict on Saturday between Michigan and the wedding as our season was over. You don't say. You don't say, really. I hadn't heard that. That's, uh, I- I'm sorry. Uh, but let me just say, the, uh, <laughs> the wedding was incredible. Uh, San Miguel de Allende is this really cool old colonial town with uh, tons of history and culture, which I just ate up. I went on a tour of the city. I went to museums and churches. Uh, all the wedding activities uh, were great. The brunches, the dinners, and the wedding reception itself was amazing.
1: You were telling me that you have yet to meet the bride. So how did it go? Did it get your thumbs up, uh, your
2: approval? I did meet her and she is stunningly beautiful and a wonderful person with a wonderful family. So if my buddy screws this up, he belongs in a mental institution.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're back safe and sound. I'm glad you had a good time in Mexico. I, as I said, uh, have been on the road. I continue to be on the road here. Uh, I was uh, an M down in Florida, did the um, Orlando City, DC United game. I'm heading off to Denver for the women's game, then to D.C. for D.C. LAFC. So uh, lots of soccer, lots of travel, uh, lots of hotels, lots of airports and, uh, and such. But what else? Uh, anything else uh, before we head on and, uh, and start this thing, Mossy?
2: Well, let me just say we are down a producer today. Luis Aguilar is not here, so we'll have to somehow overcome his absence. But I, I think we will.
1: I think we're, I think we're going to figure it out. All right, let's light this candle. As you know, each and every week... We kick the pot off with... Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective, and this week, it goes a little something like this. Trust the process. Believe in the plan. Have patience. We're building for tomorrow. This is often what teams say when they desperately want you to think about anything but the present. Kick the can down the road with the promise of a future pot of gold. Such is the case with the hapless San Jose Earthquakes and their new coach, Matias Almeida. The off-season Almeida signing was heralded as a bold, brave, and outside-the-box move. And Almeida, an Argentine with a sexy and successful international playing and coaching pedigree, immediately became the Earthquakes' biggest star, which kinda of part of the problem. Almeida's Earthquakes went out and got completely destroyed at home by LAFC. Carlos Vail and company dropped Cinco on them, leaving San Jose winless in 2019 and officially the worst team in Major League Soccer. After the game, Almeida reiterated that his is a long-term four-year project and something that requires faith, patience, and time. Now, it's not that teams can't or shouldn't have long-term plans. It's just that the soccer fan and the customer, they care about the here and now. And the long-term plan in MLS in particular, that doesn't play because MLS is a league that covets and manufactures parity. It is designed to enable teams to change their fortunes very quickly and that is the expectation. Not everyone can win, and inevitably you will have bad teams. That's not the problem. But staying bad in MLS, well, that is. If you can't even compete, then go away until you can. You can't ask fans and customers to care about a long-term plan. Let everyone know when that plan comes to fruition so we can start paying attention again. All right, Mossy, that's my State of the Union for this week. Am I being unfair? Am I being harsh uh, when I judge San Jose Earthquakes or Matias Almeida or any team in Major League Soccer, I guess any team out there for having a long-term plan and trying to sign it. it. Is it unfair to me to believe that the here and now is all that matters right now?
2: Well, to be fair to the man, he inherited what was the worst team in the league last season. But you're right. A four-year plan in MLS is ridiculous. You can have, I suppose, a four-year plan to win MLS Cup. But beginning in year one, there has to be progress. There has to be improvement. There has to be a sense that you're on the path to something. And we haven't seen that yet. So in in that respect, I totally agree with you.
1: Do you like watching a plan play out over multiple years and if so where has that ever been something that that you have gravitated to because I I, you know I talk about youth development and that's something that doesn't interest me it's not sexy to me it's not something that I want you know I don't don't care how the sausage is made I just care that it's on my plate and I get to gorge myself so let me know when it's being served and I really don't care how it actually got to uh how it got to my table do you enjoy watching a uh It doesn't even have to be about young players. It can be about any type of plan kind of in place and then come to fruition over time.
2: Well, like I said, as long as there's progress all the way through. I mean, Atlanta United had a very successful expansion season, which they used as sort of a building block to winning MLS Cup in their second year. A lot of people think LAFC are on that same path. Uh, They obviously were on the other end of that game this weekend. They hammered San Jose 5-0, and and they're sort of the early favorite, uh, a lot of people think, to win MLS Cup, and Carlos Vela is the early favorite to win the MVP. So in that sense... They're they're better this season than last season, so there's progress there. But they were also very good last season, so there has to be you know sort of a, a foundation of being pretty good. But yeah, you could sort of build it in such a way where you're improving over a period of a couple of years, certainly.
1: And I think, and I mentioned this in the State of the Union, that MLS in particular, the way that it is structured, the rules, um, the I mean, look, the fact that it doesn't have promotion relegation. I'll get to that. I'll get that in a second, but. They go out of their way and they bend over backwards to maintain and to give people the opportunity to compete year to year. We have situations in MLS that are not surprising to anybody where you can go from worst to first, where you cannot make the playoffs and then be challenging for for an MLS Cup. And yes, you have your perennial favorites and teams that either through just being really, really smart uh, or spending a whole lot of money – position themselves in a way to continually compete. but in, in MLS, you have to show the ability to make progress and to make progress fast. And you can make up a whole lot of ground very, very quickly. So when you throw out the fact that he's inheriting uh, the worst team from a, from a number standpoint and from the eye test, that is absolutely true. However, the eye test and I know it's early days. But the eye test so far is, is this heading in the right direction? If you're the San Jose Earthquakes uh, leadership right now who made this decision, do you stick with this guy or do you feel, you know what, we need to cut our losses now and we need to uh, figure out a way to rechart a course because this is not going in the right direction and this is going to get worse before it ever gets better, if it even does get better right now. And as I said before... I know this is early days and a year from now or who knows, six months from now, we could be talking about Matias Almeida as the, uh, you know, the greatest thing that we have ever seen. And a, a in terms of the change that he has made to the team and in terms of the change that he has made uh, with the league. But when you start talking about four years down the line, I think and, and I put myself back in that in, in the front office situation where the men and women that each and every day are working to sell a product. To the customers out there and they have to get on the phone and they have to sell a four-year plan that is difficult to ask people to be patient and to have faith and to sit there because at the other end you're going to get the uh you know the, the promised land and arrive at that pot of gold after four years i don't think in the modern day and i certainly don't think the modern sports customer has that patience or is willing to wait when you are asking for their hard-earned money to support a team in particular as I, as I said in major league soccer
2: now one thing Almeida said was he has a style of play that he believes in and they could be losing games 10-0 and he's not going to deviate from it I know you generally respect that notion but is that just taking it to a ridiculous extreme
1: no, I mean, if he is a true believer, I, I want you to believe in what you're doing. And, he, you know, here's where, you know, I, the, the pro relers out there love to scream and yell at me because of my stance in that I don't feel that a business like Major League Soccer should be mandated to have promotion relegation. I have no problem with promotion relegation, but here's where I will uh, I will fly the flag for them because of the lack of well, in this case, it would be relegation. Because of the lack and the fear and the pressure that relegation puts on ownership, on coaches and on players, you can, in essence, afford to do that. And you can afford to be a romantic. And that's fine because you're not going to get dinged from a a league standpoint in terms of being relegated. Where you will get dinged is the business. And you have a responsibility to put on a team that is going to sell tickets. Now, he may believe that putting on a team that like that tin cup, uh, you know, moment that I always talk about, where it doesn't matter. You're the romantic, and you're going to hit as many balls as you possibly can because you believe that's the right thing to do, rather than take the safe way and to lay up. Without a team that's going to, I guess, be more pragmatic. If he's going to just attack and he's going to expose himself and open open it up because he believes that's the way the game that should be played, the game should be played. I can respect that. I can value that at times. But ultimately, he's still no different in a league where he is going to be judged on the results. And the results aren't there right now. And if they don't start changing very, very quickly, very, very soon, I think that his his romantic notion will not only get old with the fan base, it already has to a certain extent, but I think it will even get old to him. And it would not surprise me in the least if Matias Almeida... Hart's ways amicably because he is still a, a well-known uh, quantity and a, a valuable coach out there to a lot of teams out there. And they just chalk it up to, you know what, it just it just didn't work out. It wasn't the right fit. And while it was well-intentioned at the time, uh, for any number of reasons, we wish him well and we move uh, in, in different directions going forward. That would not surprise me in the least, which is interesting because a lot of folks in the offseason, when, when I said that, and I even said it in the off season. Uh, they said no. Now, I think he's going to be given plenty of time, but it will be interesting to see if the San Jose ownership, which does not spend a lot of money and would have to find a way to get out of this, if they decided to, as I said, cut bait and say we made a mistake and in essence say they made a mistake and go in a, uh, go in a different direction. Would this type of talk, Mossy, exist and be be more accepted in another league or in another culture?
2: Yes, I think in Europe it's a little bit more cutthroat uh, with managers. The culture here in the United States, uh, there's a bit more patience, a bit more of a sense. All I'm of talking about
1: Almeida's actual uh, stance. Would would that would that actually be more accepted someplace else? And I know you have relegation, and so the pressure is there to win. But if a romantic notion like his came out in i don't know a spain or a portugal or a uh uh, i don't think it would fly in in england i don't think i mean go ask bob bradley uh but another place would they be more receptive to something like this or mexico for that matter where he's had plenty of success
2: no i think this is so bad that he'd be getting crushed anywhere (laughs) to be honest
1: no i mean and that's and that's my point let's be honest if this had happened in many other cultures uh or leagues out there i mean five nothing at home to LAFC which we know is a good team uh and possibly a great team going forward this year that's that's type those are fireable type of moments that we have seen play out over the years in uh in in other leagues so i don't think it's i don't think that that i or anybody that's saying this is being unfair to expect uh and to certainly have expected more even though it's early days and there's still time to turn it around but so far, this looks to be a team that is not only not as good uh, as last year, as horrible as they were last year, but maybe even worse. And so that's that's not the direction that you want. Now, from his perspective, you probably say, well, it might be a step back in order to go two steps forward. But you know what? You better get those two steps uh, forward going pretty quickly here uh, or else we uh, we might find a uh, Almeida-less San Jose earthquakes uh, going forward. All right, Mossy, anything more on this before we head on?
2: Well, let me just say, first off, we're going to revisit promotion and relegation in the back three uh, because we're going to address uh, Brad Friedel's comments, so we'll go down that rabbit hole twice on today's pod. I did want to ask you one last question. Drink twice. Um, do you take any satisfaction from seeing these big-name foreign managers like Almeida and DeBoer that come into the league to great fanfare struggle? Do you think that perhaps they underestimate MLS, and, and do you like that you know they, they, they come to find out all the challenges of coaching in this league?
1: Yes. I take I take great Pleasure in it, and look, I, I, I have told you that I'm going to be honest with you, uh, and when I say you, I mean the the viewers and or listeners out there of this podcast, and I try to do that on a continual basis. Sometimes you agree, sometimes you don't. Uh, that makes me human. It makes me honest, but it also makes me it makes me human in that I think, and that comes from you know that that, that stuff that we talk about all the time. The the insecurity and the inferiority complex that we often wear uh, on our sleeve, uh, it comes out in different ways. And so the humbling process uh, of of what we would put up on a pedestal, and, and certainly from a, um, a resume perspective, would be very high profile and elite type of coaches out there, to to you know, to get into Major League Soccer and all the strangeness that Major League Soccer is, and to see them uh, them struggle, yeah, I, I I mean it's not like I sit off in the corner and giggle or anything like that, but the but but I also I also enjoy when they come out the other side, and so you know I I, I enjoy seeing a Patrick Vieira very very quickly get up to speed on what major league soccer is and isn't never complain but adjust accordingly and still be able to implement his, uh, his his system and that's you know that's that's a good thing and and I if I'm going into another country another culture another league I'm going in with eyes wide open and just because I have my ideas about how the game should be played I have to be able to figure out a way to implement those ideas in what can be a very, very different culture on and off the field. And I have to be willing to adjust and I have to be willing to do things differently um, as opposed to, you know, take the take the high ground and stand on principle and come hell or high water, this is what I'm going to do. Because that is a sure way, especially when you're going into a situation and or culture or country that you don't have a lot of experience with or don't understand at all that's a sure way of making it be a very, very short stay. I don't know do you do you take any pleasure in seeing that happen?
2: Yes, uh, when I get a sense that the the manager underestimated the challenges of coaching an MLS it's uh it actually is interesting to see them kind of come to that realization. <laughs> I, I do find it fascinating.
1: Yeah. And look, and, you know, there there is what, what do they call it. What's that German thing? Schadenfreude and all that all that kind of stuff going on. I mean, w- w- especially now with, you know, Atlanta and how great they were and with Frank de Boer coming in and struggling. And, and you know, you hear these comments and complaints about this and this and this. And, uh, you know, I know we're going to talk more about uh, our friend Brad Friedel later on. Uh, but remind me to bring up um, a, uh, a, a former MLS greats reaction to this very topic, Mike McGee, when we when we get there. He had some really interesting things to say uh, as to how coaches go about adjusting or not adjusting, for that matter, to what we know is a very unique and a very, very strange at times league to play in and certainly to coach it. All right. Anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right. Moving on. Hello, people. It's Alexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out, Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from Major League Soccer, the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part? It's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now, back to the show. Mossy makes the case. Yes, it's time for Ask Mossy. No, it's not time for Ask Mossy. We don't even do that. It's time for Mossy Makes the Case. I just thought I'd throw that in to see if you're paying attention. Uh, Yes, Mossy Makes the Case. Mossy, what are you casing for this week, my friend?
2: My case is that Bayern Munich have finally accepted that money makes the world go round. Uh, Last week, Bayern announced the signing for next season of Atletico Madrid defender Lucas Hernandez they paid his buyout clause of 80 million euros, which meant almost doubling their previous club record fee of 41.5 million, which they spent on Corentin Toliso two years ago. Uh, this signing came on the heels of an interview Uli Jonas gave to Bild in which he said that this upcoming summer Bayern are going to spend like never before. They've also already agreed a agree deal with Benjamin Pavard for next season. They've reportedly tabled a €75 million bid for Leverkusen midfielder Kai Havertz. And they've been linked to the likes of Timo Werner, Gareth Bale, and Chelsea youngster Callum Hudson-Odoi. This is interesting because Bayern was the big club that was most put off by the escalating market in recent years. They took a lot of pot shots at the Premier League, PSG... Barcelona and Real Madrid, they suggested they would never spend that kind of money and that they could remain competitive by outsmarting those clubs, which effectively meant taking advantage of the fact that the rest of the Bundesliga is essentially a feeder league for them. But it's amazing what trailing... Uh, Dortmund for most of this season in the Bundesliga and going out meekly in the round of 16 of the Champions League can do to a club's philosophy. Bayern have apparently uh, decided to reverse course, and it's only going to make uh, the transfer market even crazier because now you have another big club that's decided to stop trying to claim the moral high ground and has instead entered the arms race. Wow.
1: Um, Okay, so my my question would be what. What was the straw that broke the camel's back? Because, look, Bayern Munich, say what you want about them, but I think we all agree that there are some very smart people that have been running that club for a number of years in terms of the business on the field and the business off the field. So what what was the final straw in order to say this is what we have to do? Was it just this is the new world and this is what we have to do to compete?
2: Yeah, I think this Liverpool tie in the Champions League uh, really uh, exposed the fact that they've fallen way behind the elite clubs in Europe, and the only way they're going to catch up is to spend big. Uh, They have this advantage, like I said, that um, other German clubs are willing to sell players to them at cut-rate fees because uh, they were able to get Pavard for €35 million, which now you compare to what Real Madrid spent for Eder Militon and what Bayern ended up spending for Lucas Hernandez. And I can't figure out how they're able to get Pavard for just $35 but they were. So they do have that ace in the hole that they're able to go buy these uh, very good players from other Bundesliga clubs uh, for lesser fees than than perhaps somebody else would have to spend. But still, it's it's not enough. I mean, if you're going to compete at the highest, highest levels, you're going to have to get in there, get in the mud with, like I said, the PSGs, the, the big Premier League clubs, Manchester City, and so forth, and you're going to have to be willing to spend. Like, I mean, they just did 80 million euros on a left back. So uh, I think it's just they've come to realize after that Liverpool time, particular, that it's unavoidable.
1: Is there anybody, Mossy, for, for our listeners out there that might not follow the Bundesliga a, a whole lot? Is there anybody out there that, from a financial standpoint, can also make this leap? Uh, and we know, obviously, from a, a a table standpoint, the back and forth between. Uh, Dortmund and Bayern Munich right now but is, is Bayern Munich on such a, another level when it comes to their ability to step into this, this new world that they're the only ones that could possibly do this from a German standpoint?
2: Well, Dortmund have more financial might than people realize. They've sort of gotten uh, pegged as a selling club, but they do play in an 80,000-seat stadium that's full every week. They have tons of sponsors. Uh, Forbes recently put out a list of the uh, clubs with the highest revenue, and Dortmund was like in the top 15 in all of Europe. You also have Leipzig that have the Red Bull backing. So there's a couple that, if they decided to go that route, I think could at least spend in the ballpark of what Bayern Munich are spending. But certainly I think Bayern uh, can go to a place that... No no other German club can.
1: Does the structure of the Bundesliga, with the 50 plus one, uh, and please explain that to our, to our listeners out there? Does that uh, does that inhibit and, and hamper the ability of not just Bayern but everybody to to live in this world that we are seeing now with La Liga, uh, with uh, well to a certain extent uh, Liga, and obviously uh, the EPL elites and super clubs.
2: It does, yeah. The 50 plus one rule essentially is that you can only get a license to play in the Bundesliga if your club is at least 51% owned by the club members. So in other words, the most that only that a private owner can come in and buy is 49%. Uh, so they're trying to prevent like what's happened with Man City or PSG of just some rich Russian oligarch or Arab Sheik coming in, buying the club and being able to spend out of his own pocket however he wants without having to <laughs> run his decisions by anybody else. So you have these club members that that essentially own a percentage of the club and has to be at least 51% and so they vote on all the big decisions. So yeah, that does, some people have suggested that that does impair Bundesliga club's ability to compete, go toe to toe with, say, PSG or Manchester City. So yeah, there have been critics of that 50 plus run one rule. They think it's outdated and there's already been some loopholes and some clubs that have worked around it. Leipzig, uh, most famously, so uh, it'd be interesting to see where that goes in the future, in the coming years.
1: Well, I mean, theoretically, the, the 50 plus one rule could could pose problems, uh, and and you would actually it, it works against them because the if you have somebody that has ridiculous amounts of money, oligarch, whatever it ends up ends up being, then there's less pressure for it to be a functioning and traditional type of business model and therefore if you don't have it then you actually have, a, have to have a ledger and you have to have a budget and you have to go out there and you have to uh you have to find a way to make what you have spent and obviously that's going to fall many times on uh, on the supporters so in a strange way what's protecting them from these these individuals with an incredible amount of money uh, as you said could could pose problems going forward but this also you know, this also leads to that that evergreen type of talk of this Super League type uh, of existence. And, you know, what Bayern Munich, I think, is the only team I know, you know, you said Leipzig and and Borussia Dortmund, but in this type of stratosphere and mega stratosphere when it comes uh, comes to spending, Bayern Munich right now is a is a no brainer. But. Will, do you think that ultimately this type of approach, one, is going to result in them regaining their foothold as one of the elites? I mean, they're still an elite, but one of the elites that's challenging uh, for Champions League? Or is this just, we just got to do it and we're just going to throw money around? Because we know just because you throw money around doesn't necessarily mean it translates into uh, a better team.
2: Well, I'll be interested to see who they end up getting moving forward because most of the players they've been linked with I've been younger guys. So, all this spending, uh, people assume, is going to be in the context of quote unquote rebuilding. But I know Jovan Karofsky thinks, no, that if you're Bayern Munich and you're in this win-now mode, you need to go out and get experienced players. I know he mentioned a few weeks ago on our show that they should try to sign Marco Royce, One of the players they've been linked with recently, which somewhat surprised me, was Gareth Bale. So they could perhaps go that route for a couple of the signings, but then sign younger players otherwise. So it'd be interesting to see who they get, and is it is it are they moves aimed at being ultra-competitive right away, or are they going to get younger players that might need a couple of years to settle there and develop? So we'll have to wait and see on that. But I mean, look, th- this uh, case Case in point, this Lucas Hernandez move, yes, they overpaid, but I think he's an excellent player and they now have an incredibly versatile back line because it's interesting. They have the starting fullbacks from the France World Cup winning side in Pavard and Lucas Hernandez, or at least they're going to have them next season, and yet both those guys are equally comfortable playing in the center of defense. You have Joshua Kimmich who can play right back, center back, or as a holding midfielder. Alaba can play as left back or in the midfield. Even Javier Martinez who might not be there next season, but if he is, he can play as a holding midfielder or as a center back. So they do have a lot of interesting pieces in that back third that they can mix and match and play different combinations. So, yes, they overpaid, but they got better. And so it's going to be interesting to see um, how they sort of measure that, the value of, hey, are we willing to overspend on players if we think they're definitely going to make us better? So it's something to keep an eye on. Uh, I mean, the, the other bigger question here is who's going to be managing this team next season because Nico Kovac had seemingly righted the ship. They ripped off 13 wins out of 14 in the Bundesliga. We were lauding him on our shows and now the elimination at the hands of Liverpool coupled with this terrible result this uh, weekend against Freiburg. They've fallen behind Dortmund again. They have a big game coming up this weekend which we'll get to but if the rest of the season goes badly and they don't win the Bundesliga, uh, you know, he might be gone. There's even been some crazy reports in the last couple of days about Bayern potentially hiring Jose Mourinho so that's something going to keep an eye on as well who's going to be coaching all this high-priced talent wow all
1: right well let's finish this uh this talk off because we are talking about Bayern Munich because as you mentioned there is a big not a big game a huge game this weekend their classic Bayern Munich hosting Dortmund as you mentioned Bayern Munich you know what the bed over the weekend uh only got a point at Freiburg Dortmund won uh so now Dortmund uh in the league by what two points is that correct correct all right, so what, what do you see happening this weekend? Is this for all the marbles? Is this Does this decide the Bundesliga title this year?
2: No, I wouldn't say that. There's enough games left after this. But uh, it's interesting. Dortmund, as you said, has a, have a two-point lead. So a draw would be a great result for them. But I don't know if they're a team that's equipped to go in there and play for a draw. Um, I think they have to just be themselves. And uh, if you go back to the first meeting uh, in November, uh, Lucien Favre got a little cute with the starting lineup. He essentially gave away the first half, I thought. Uh, but they got into the locker room only down 1-0. And then he made some changes in the second half, which improved the team. And, and they played much better. And they ended up winning 3-2. And I thought their pace gave Bayern a lot of problems, those aging legs. There was one moment in the second half that was very telling where Jaden Sancho just blew by Mats Hummels on a counterattack. And so I think that's the path for Dortmund here to really take advantage of that of that speed and pace and their youth and, and to try to uh, take advantage of those old Bayern legs. So if, if Dortmund sit back and try to manage this game too much, I think that could be problematic for them. I think they have to go at Bayern and play their normal game and try to win it. But in the back of their minds, they know that a draw would not be a bad result.
1: Well, we will see what happens. Uh, anything else that you want to case about with regards to Bayern Munich, Mossy? Uh, no, that's it. All right. Well, we'll see if, uh, if your prognostication comes true and Bayern Munich becomes the freewheeling high spending type of club uh, that has to uh, that they feel they need to be in order to compete with this ever-changing world and this high spending world uh, of the elites and the super clubs that they that they live in and if they want to keep continue uh, continue to live in uh, they're going to have to keep up with uh, going forward and then of course this weekend with uh, their Classica uh, and we'll see what happens and who's on top after this weekend and if this is the pivotal moment in the season, With regards to the title chase all right moving on
0: ask alexi
1: okay it's time for ask alexi use that hashtag ask alexi and uh we will pick out some good ones questions comments concerns and then mossy will do what he's about to do which is read a few of them on the air all right mossy what do the people want to know this week
2: Well, this is a nice segue, actually, because we finished the Mossy Makes the Case talking Dortmund. One player they're not going to have in this upcoming Classic, which, by the way, is on Big Fox, is Christian Pulisic at soul underscore man 96 wants to know, hey, Alexi Lalas, will Pulisic ever stay healthy for longer than a month or two? Does he just need a break or is he just trying to come back too early?
1: I don't think he needs a break. I don't think he's trying to come back too early. I just think that he's fragile. I mean, look, I uh, you know, I often say that staying healthy is a skill. and people agree. people disagree. Uh, it's a skill that he has yet to acquire, uh, let alone to master, understanding what your body can and cannot do. But there's also just a, just an element of this is a player who started very, very early uh, and had plenty of success. And when you start very, very early, uh, you also have to recognize that the actual physical body that you are starting with is going to change dramatically. I mean my my body changed dramatically when I went to college. so 17 and 18, nineteen, 20 um, than when I was 15, 16, and 17. Uh, and and not because necessarily I did a lot of, a lot. Of, it was just the way that that I that I grew. Then you add on, the type of weight training that you're doing uh the tr- the type of lifestyle that you're living off the field the type of things that you're doing from a training perspective and it can either immediately shock your system or over time it can take a toll so look i don't have an answer as to when he's going to stay healthy is it a prob- is it a problem yeah it's a problem because as we t- as we've said before the value to a good player is the consistency of a good player. And consistency comes with not only doing the job, but being able to do the job. And right now, you're getting a sporadic type of performance from Christian Pulisic. He's either coming off an injury, or we're waiting for that next injury. And so, look, there are... There are medical folks out there and there are people out there that have racked their brains. And this has been a question over time as to how do you get a player to stay healthy? And everybody's got their ideas. And is it, do you push them more? Do you push them less? Uh, Is it a situation where they are doing specific drills that are leading to it? And, you know, it's sometimes it's just this is how this player is made. And he or she has yet to understand what their limitations are. And it's yet to come to that point that all players, well, all players that, that have any type of longevity do, of recognizing how that manifests on the field in terms of the way that they play. So they're not putting themselves in positions. Now, the way that Christian plays just inherently, uh, you know, that's that's going to be problematic. But keep in mind, he's also playing in a league where we'll look at Arian Robin uh, or Frank Ribéry. And I know it's later in their, in their careers but they are certainly they certainly have a long history of having injuries and being out for extended periods of time and being out in important periods. It doesn't mean that they aren't great players, and it doesn't mean that Christian Pulisic can't go on to be a great player. But especially for the U.S. national team, which I know a lot of people, we put this in context of the U.S. national team, if you are building around a Christian Pulisic, that's problematic because there's only one Christian Pulisic in the pool right now that can do what he does. And if you're building around doing what he does and that goes away because historically we have seen that he gets injured and usually the soccer gods will say, well, not only is it going to go away, but we're going to have it go away at the worst possible time. So a crucial qualifier. Or God forbid, a World Cup game where, in order for the U.S. to 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 function, if they're building around Christian Pulisic, they need Christian Pulisic on the field. So I know that's a long answer. I don't. I can't tell you when he's going to stay healthy more longer than a month or two. Maybe it's just his adult self and his twenties version, mid twenties and late twenties version of itself. Maybe he gets that more steeled and that, that more solid in terms of of who he is physically and an understanding, as we said, uh, going forward. But it's it's concerning. It's concerning from a Chelsea perspective. It's concerning from a longevity perspective to see what this player can be. And obviously it's concerning from a U.S. men's national team perspective.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't think he was going to start uh, this upcoming weekend, but Dortmund do lose a good option off the bench. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if Alcacer starts to hop back to that game for a second because he's kind of rediscovered his early season form. He got two this past weekend against Wolfsburg and won the previous game against uh, Stuttgart, in which Pulisic came off the bench, uh, assisted Alcacer's goal, and got one of his own. So, yeah, not having Pulisic, uh, you know, you lose a good option there late in the game, like I said, against those tired Bayern legs to bring him on and let him run it, uh, the Bayern back line. So uh, we'll see if Dortmund can overcome that. So uh, moving on, at B 541 who got the best and worst marks for this U.S. camp?
1: Interesting. Uh, so let me think back as to who came out of this I'm not smelling like a rose. I mean, I think the team in general. I think I gave them a a B after this next round of games. A good solid B. I saw some I saw some progression, and certainly they were playing against uh, a higher level of competition. Uh, it, it, the the very defensive minded Ecuador, but also the very high press and high energy minded Chile. Uh, and they got out of that with a win and a tie. So I think, from a results perspective, overall, the team gets a B. I think Will Trap, uh, as I said before, comes out of this better than he went into it. And certainly, this is all all in my eyes. And you know, I I still remain, I, I remain to be convinced fully on Will Trap. But I'm but I'm coming around, and I think that there is a legitimate battle between him. Uh, and Michael Bradley, and certainly a Will Trapp at five years younger, and also a player who has played under Greg Berhalter. Uh, ultimately, I, I think that that's going to be an interesting thing to see what Greg Berhalter comes out. But Will Trapp, I think, was a uh, a big winner. Paul Ariola I think, continues to to show that um, that he can either from a substitute's perfect- perspective come in and make a difference. That's important. Let's see. You know the like Tyler Adams, I think, just shows that he needs to be on the field to come in and to to try to play that hybrid right back position, which is like that's that's not something that he is used to do to do. But I just think he proved that regardless of how this all flushes out, he's going to be on the field in some capacity and you need him on the field in some capacity because of the ground he covers, because of how smart he is. I just think, what that role ultimately is 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 left to is going to be decided, but I don't think what is to be decided is whether he's going to be on the field uh, on the field or not. Um, you know, Sean Johnson. Uh, let's see who else. Uh, Bill Bill Hami. These types. These guys weren't. Uh, Bill wasn't in. Bill wasn't in camp. But you know, the Zach Steffen type of situation. Um, you know, I think because this team wants to play out of the back. Guys like Zach Steffen, guys like Sean Johnson, uh, I think that they are going to be at a premium. I still think Zach Steffen is the uh, is the number one, uh, but you never know. Uh, he's got a he's got an interesting year as he finishes half of the year with Columbus and then moves to Man City. That's gonna be uh, that's gonna be fun. Uh, we mentioned Christian Pulisic we we saw him do what he needs to do when he's out there in terms of putting the ball in the back of the net, but we also saw, and so that was not unexpected, but also wasn't unexpected, and we just talked about it, was uh, him getting injured and not being available to continue to see how he functions and what his role is with this team uh, going forward. It was good to see Jordan Morris back. Um, I think that was uh, that was important. Defensively, look, I think the, the, the back four in both, in both versions, were were solid. Uh, you know, Tim Ream getting back in there. I'm not sure he, you know, his ability to play out of the back and with that left foot, I think he's going to still be in the conversation. John Brooks is is a solid starter right uh, right now. You know, the, the DeAndre Edlin thing is interesting because of the fact that we have seen him as a right back for so much time with the national team. And now Greg Berhalter not wanting to have him be in that position anymore. Can he morph and change into and it's not that he hasn't played at a right wing pipe position but under this coach and in this national team can he figure it out so I don't think that there's anybody that came out of this camp with a anything below a B minus I think everybody was well within the B range and there certainly weren't any that said oh my goodness they just don't deserve uh don't deserve to be here going forward so I think all in all it was a successful camp and as I said, I give Greg Berhalter and the team a, a solid B uh, for these last two games.
2: Finally, at Michael Ackley 19, if you could go back in time and watch one match, what would it be?
1: Oh that's an interesting question that is an interesting question Michael. Um, so being the uh, self-absorbed uh, narcissist, arrogant conceited person that I am. Maybe I'll go back and watch a game that I participated in. No, I won't. No, I won't. I won't I won't I won't do that. Um let's see. So, you know, while I grew up watching Diego Maradona play, I never watched Pele play in a competitive and live moment. Uh, I know he played in the NASO for the Cosmos, but I never was able to see that and I never did see it. So, I would love to go back into, I don't know. I mean, let's say the the, the World Cup final for '70 in uh, in Mexico City, right? What was that against uh, Italy? Correct. Uh, what was it 4-1 Italy final? I think Pele had a goal. To to see him in his in his prime, I know. To see him play when he was 16 might have been interesting, more interesting. I don't know. I like to see kind of fully evolved versions of players. So I, I would I'd go back to Mexico City in 1970 uh, and watch play um, with Brazil and to see what it was that moved everybody that you can't see on on video what about you Mossy
2: well I actually have uh, uh, VHS tapes and DVDs of a lot of old uh, Brazil World Cup matches including all the games from 70s so I'd be happy to lend you uh, those if you want to go back and watch it
1: yeah but that's not the same I can I, I've watched those I mean I, I, there's a reason why I'm going back to it. it is because I've seen it on video but oh you want to sort of experience that, 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 it as it that's happens different Yeah, I think this question is about what would you go back and watch actually be there? Because we all know watching a game on television, as exciting as it can be, is very different than watching it in person.
2: Right, yeah. Yeah, I guess... Yeah, Pele would be one. I'd love to sort of experience him in his prime and see what that felt like and be able to compare it to Messi and Cristiano now. Also, the uh, Brazilian Ronaldo, uh, the pre-injury version of him uh, with Barcelona in 96, 97. I, I wouldn't mind going back in time and kind of experiencing that again and like the chills I got seeing him do all those amazing things for the first time. So that, those would be my answers there.
1: I also will say that because of my background, because of my national team experience to be able to go back and to see you know a Joe Gaijin's play back uh, back in the day because and that's something there where it's very there's very little um archived in terms of what you can see I, I know the Hall of Fame down in Dallas does a great job of trying to preserve what there is but to be actually to actually to be able to be at that World Cup 50 whatever years what no gosh let me back well more than that, I don't know how many years ago. Uh, and to be able to see my U.S. national team uh, play, but play back at that time, that would be really, really interesting um, to, to see it. And the the sense of pride, but also the curiosity that what I would have of how the game was played and specifically how this U.S. team that has become such a part of the mythology actually went about playing the game. That's it. That's it? All right, Mossy. Well, uh, use that hashtag AskAlexi and uh, send it on all the uh, social media platforms out there, and who knows, we may read one of your questions uh, going forward. All right, moving on. The Back Three. Okay, it's time for the Back Three when we look at some big stories, games, or moments out there. Mossy, what's in the uh, Back Three this week?
2: All right, first up, uh, the U.S. women's national team have two friendlies coming up. They face Australia in Colorado. That match is on FS1. And then a few days later, they face Belgium at Bank of California Stadium here in Los Angeles. Uh, That one, I believe, is on ESPN2. After these two games, there'll be just a three-game send-off series in May before they go to France and uh, try to defend their World Cup crown. Uh, We know it's been a sputtering start to 2019 for Joe Ellis' side. Um, How important are these games to start building momentum towards the World Cup?
1: It's huge. I mean, I'm heading to Denver and I'm so excited because, you know, one, I get to see the continued drama that is the defending World Cup champions uh, U.S. Women's National Team under Jill Ellis try to put it together after, as you said, what was a less than impressive outing uh, last time that we saw this uh, U.S. Women's National Team in the She Believes Cup. And I get to see them play against a I guess they would be called a dark horse. I mean, you wouldn't be out of your mind to go and put your money, if you want to win some money, on Australia with Sam Kerr, one of the great goal scorers of the world, leading that team. um, If you put it all on uh, Australia to win, and I know that the U.S. and France are going to get a lot of the attention, but I get to see the U.S. play a team that could possibly make a real deep run. And another team that I think has started to... Believe that they don't need to fear the U.S. And there are more and more teams that are starting to have that mentality—a mentality which is something that the U.S. has been able um, to use to their advantage because so many teams have feared them. And even when there was a possibility of even competing with them, that fear uh, was something that was overriding in terms of the uh, the final result. So I'm excited to see this team uh continue to move towards uh towards france uh but more importantly i'm i'm actually excited to see the opponent to really see what this team is about and if they are living up to the pre-tournament hype that they have when it comes uh when it comes to australia
2: yeah i mean australia has played the us very tough Uh, the last two meetings uh was an australia 1-0 win and a 1-1 draw uh they're they're ranked sixth in the world as you mentioned sam kerr a lot of people think is the best player in the world so this is a stiff test for the u.s a couple of uh, miscellaneous notes here alex morgan is on 99 international goals her next one should become the seventh u.s player to get to 100 and ali krieger who is on the 2011 and 2015 world cup squads but hasn't played since 2017 is back in the squad so that'll be interesting to see how she does
1: oh wow Ali Krieger back all right cool so yep. yeah and uh, you know so we'll see if this is a temporary spot fill um, for someone that we know has a tremendous amount of experience uh, at that outside back type of uh, position and or if this is a, a temporary thing or if she ultimately comes in at the uh, at the uh, 11th hour and makes a case for herself and finds her way on the plane to uh,
2: France uh, next up. Manchester United last week made uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer their uh, next permanent manager. They removed the interim tag. Uh, they gave him a contract until 2022. Uh, this news was met was met with an initial burst of praise, but now there's starting to be a little bit of a backlash. Uh, some people comparing it to Roberto Di Matteo at Chelsea. I don't know if you remember, but he took over during the 2011-12 season. Did very well. They gave him the permanent job, and then he was sacked early the next season. There's perhaps a sense that Solskjaer is still kind of riding a post modding a wave that anybody that came in there that was a nice guy was going to do well but when the dust settles that he is going to be out of his depth and there's some questions tactically some questions about his ability to recruit players so what do you make of this move of United giving Solskjaer the job
1: I think they almost had to do it Um, when we've talked about this on the pod now for because it's been a huge story I think that he has right now look, he has plenty of leverage right now because of the results that they have gotten. But I also think that he has captured the hearts and minds not only of the Manchester United faithful, but more importantly, of the players in the locker room. And we talk so much about X's and O's and formations and styles of play and all that kind of stuff. And when it really comes down to, it's coming it comes down to managing. And especially when you're talking about an elite club that has elite players. They understand how to play the game. And, you know, this is what makes Zinedine Zidane so so wonderful. We we know that from a tactics perspective, he knows what he knows and he knows what he doesn't know. But from a managing perspective and managing these egos and managing these personalities, there is there are few better. I mean, the great part about Pep, I think, is that he combines both of those. But if you only have one of them, you better understand the one that you have and use it to your advantage and I think Zinedine Zidane uh, does that and I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and this this doesn't mean that either of them don't understand tactics or anything like that but I think that they that their real value comes from their ability day in and day out to look these players in the eye to tell them at times what they need to hear at times what they want to hear maybe at times what they don't want to hear and ultimately to get those players to play better and that's the mark of, of any good coach. How that coach goes about it is, is up to that coach and can be done in multiple ways. But I think the management style of Ole right now, uh, you know, some of it's just timing and serendipity. It's the perfect time for this type of manager to come in and to get these players going in the uh, in the right direction. Are you are you cautiously optimistic? Uh, are you worried about this?
2: Yeah, I have questions about this move. I want to see how he's going to handle his first real bit of adversity when they have any kind of losing streak next season and he's getting criticized. We haven't seen that yet, so that's going to be an interesting test. Uh, As far as his tactics, it's funny because a lot of the opposing managers that have faced United the last a couple of months, have said there is a difference. They are more attack-minded, they're more aggressive, they're more explosive, they press higher. But uh, Louis van Gaal came out and <laughs> he said, and obviously he was United coach and was criticized for being too defensive, and he came out and said, look, Mourinho and I were, were accused of parking the bus. Solskjaer hasn't done anything different than us, but it's just the results have gone his way. He's won games, and so the perception is that there's something different. I mean, do you buy that? Do you think uh, it's a bit of a misnomer, this notion that Solskjaer hasn't back playing Manchester United football?
1: Absolutely, I agree with that. Absolutely, 100%. But guess what? Doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter because we know it's not about how you play. It's about whether you get the results and whether you win. And then, you know, people are going to nitpick here or there. Well, it's not pretty. It's not this, whatever, whatever. But when it comes to Manchester United, in two, the 2019 version of Manchester United, beggars can't be choosers, all right? And it, as long as you're getting results people will give you the benefit of the doubt, okay? So uh, he's absolutely right. But the fact is that whether, whether he's parking the bus or not, and we can make arguments, but e- even if, uh, if Ole is parking the bus, it's getting results. And he's parking the bus well in terms of the ability in, on transition to counter and to, uh, and to make other teams pay. So while, while it's right, it's not as much, uh, he's not throwing as much shade as one would make it out to be. He's just stating what, what is absolutely correct. But there's two way doing the same thing by two different people may have two different results. And when it comes to sports, the result that wins more often than not, that's what they're going to go with, and that's what they're going with right now. Do you you agree or disagree with his assessment of, of of how Manchester United has played under Ole?
2: I think there have been some subtle changes, but it's not anything dramatic. It's way more about the confidence that he's instilled in the players. Uh, two, two more quick thoughts on this before we move on. It's interesting this sense now that you can't wait until the summer to sort out your managerial situation because the uh, recruitment of players in your transfer business starts before that. So a lot of people think United made this move now because they feel like they need to have a manager in place to already start pursuing players for the summer. And you're seeing other clubs do that as well. We talked about how Bayern's already gotten their transfer business underway, and it's 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 interesting this mentality now that you you kind of the the summer stuff as far as figuring out who your manager is and your transfer starts earlier than it used to. The other thing is that United are also going to hire a uh, sporting director. Uh, English clubs are starting to move away from the model where the manager has complete control over transfers. So a lot of people think that hire is at least as important as who they were going to make their manager. So we'll see who they hire a sporting director, and he's going to have uh, most of the say on. Transfer is not so shard so we'll see how they work together and all that. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that.
1: Mossy, don't underestimate the value of a player's coach. And don't underestimate how much players talk. And as big as Mourinho is, as big as Louis Van Gaal is, these these types of players, if you get marked as a difficult coach and one that's not a player's coach, sometimes that's, that's difficult to get away from. And Ole, whatever you think of him, I think that there is a... if if there is a a secret wavelength going out there between players, it's that, look, this is a player's coach. This is a guy who gets it. This is a guy who understands. This is a guy that's going to understand what you're going through and is going to do the things and say the things that make you better. And that is there is value to that. It's probably why they're paying him, what, 7.5 million pounds a year. And uh, what, only Pep and uh, Pochettino are earning more? Uh, so I think that they they value him both as the motivator on the sideline on game day, but also as a wonderful draw when it comes to recruiting talent, which is something that they need to do going forward.
2: All right, we'll end on this. Our former colleague Brad Friedel off to a difficult start with the New England Revolution uh, this season, and he had a, a quote that's gotten a lot of attention. Uh, he said this about players in MLS. The mentality of a player in this league, a lot of the players, when they lose, it doesn't hurt enough. There's not relegation. They don't get fined. They don't have fans waiting by their cars. They don't have people beating them up. They don't have the pressures that they have in other leagues. Uh, some people have applauded uh, Frito's comments and saying it's the harsh truth. Other, others have criticized him. Uh, what's, what's your reaction?
1: Well, it it may be the truth, but who cares once again? And I I will quote my friend Mike McGee. And by the way, Brad Friedel, friend, colleague, uh, I I wish him well. But, you know, he's in the position of a coach that has struggled. He took over the revolution last year, and actually they had less points than they had the previous year. So uh, as far as heading in the right direction, the jury is still out on Brad Friedel. And let's be honest, when it comes to New England and the New England revolution, they are— they're not irrelevant, but they're a whole lot less relevant than most of the teams uh, out there for what they do on and off the field right now. And that's not Brad Friedel's uh, fault or, or problem, but that's just the reality of the situation. So when Brad Friedel comes out and says something like this, this is the most attention that the reps have gotten other than their uh, their futility. And this it came after a number of losses and a team that looks like, um, until this past week, was really going to struggle. And even this this weekend— these comments were interesting, to say the least. Uh, Mike McGee said, and I'm going to quote his tweet right here uh, with regards to this, figure out a way to win like all the other good slash great coaches have in MLS and then talk all the shit you want, Mr. Friedel. And that's, that's really, that's really the, the, the situation. Now, look, I'm sure Brad w- was trying to be um, more nuanced and I'm sure he would argue that you don't quite understand what I was saying. But the reality is that, yes, Brad Friedel, if, if you needed Brad Friedel to point out to you that the culture surrounding soccer in the United States in 2019 is not the same as the culture surrounding soccer or football uh, in England or someplace else like that, that's that's obvious. But you're going to have to figure out. So do you try to manufacture that culture in some way? And maybe he did just that by coming out very publicly In a way that transcended not just the local market, but we're talking about here nationally, maybe that's one way that you do it. And they got the result over the weekend. Wasn't pretty, but they got the result. They got the three points. So I guess maybe mission accomplished when it it comes right down to it. But uh, you know, The reality is for Brad Friedel, just like anybody else, and I know I started the pod talking about Mateus Almeida, is Brad's going to be judged on the results that he gets and that he did or didn't get them in whatever culture it ends up being. Nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to ca- care that you weren't able to motivate your players when you, if you blame it on the culture that they are playing in. We all get that. We all understand that there's there's little pressure when it comes to the media. There's little pressure when it comes uh, when it comes to the fans. I, I understand that, but everybody understands it. And I think that's what Mike McGee's point was that every coach that comes here eventually recognizes that you're not in Kansas anymore. Uh, and even coaches, you know, like like Brad Friedel, who I guess in theory, should know better. This is, this is the reality of the situation that you have chosen. And you can complain all you want about things that happen on and off the field. But it doesn't change the reality of the situation. And you sure as hell can't use it as an excuse when every other coach and every other team deals with the same reality that you do.
2: A couple things just to unpack this quote a little bit. Uh, We talked during the Copa Libertadores final between book and river, how there's a fine line between glorifying passion, but then when it crosses a certain line, you find out you end up condemning it. And it was kind of funny to uh, see Brad almost turn it into a virtue. Fans waiting by your car and beating you up. (laughs) Because I imagine if that actually happened here, we'd all be (laughs) condemning it and saying that's a terrible thing. So that was kind of funny to me. And then the other thing is, again, promotion relegation, not to go down that rabbit hole again. But um, do, do you think... Uh, there there are many arguments that people put forth in favor of promotion relegation but is that one that it, it could perhaps change the mentality of the american player that it would instill even more pressure on him and 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 there could be a sort of some sort of impact there
1: i guess look i've been involved in promotion relegation i recognize the pressure i recognize the excitement and the entertainment that it can create but but as far as the conversation that we're having i recognize that it could that it can put additional pressure on teams, on coaches, and obviously on players, uh, but you know, I, I, I understand what he's saying, but I, th- I always thought that there was plenty of pressure just from a pure job standpoint to be able uh, to be able to win. Now I know when you get relegated, oftentimes there's contractual things that happen, and and you can make less money. Uh, you'll you'll be sold. You'll move on, and you don't want to change teams and all that kind of stuff. But I, I don't. I don't see that that Brad Friedel's team, had they been playing in a league where there was relegation, would have played any better or stronger or, or harder in the games that I have watched. But, you know, I could be wrong. Now, I'm not sure we're ever going to see that, or we're certainly not going to see it anytime soon. So once again, this is throwing out something that, while on the surface, what you're saying Uh, is is plausible and certainly can be used as an argument it ignores the reality of the situation and it's not a reality that you are dealing with on an individual basis everybody is faced with these challenges and so if everybody's faced then it's all relative so you got to find a way to function in the reality that you are inhabiting and brad friedel knows that better than anybody else but um, I, I understand to a certain extent what he's saying, but reality is that they won this weekend and that's ultimately what he's going to be judged on.
2: And, uh, uh, two teams with a winning mentality, uh, this season so far, DC United and LAFC, uh, they square off this upcoming weekend. You're going to be covering that game, correct?
1: We are. We are going into DC with two smoking hot teams right now. Uh, as you mentioned, DC United undefeated. Um, and only uh, they've only let one goal in, and LAFC, which is just a juggernaut. Obviously, you got Wayne Rooney who's scoring left and right, and Carlos Vela who's scoring left and right and left again because of that great left foot of his. So uh, that's gonna be that's gonna be real fun on uh, on Big Fox. We got some surprises for you in terms of the broadcast. We I, I will I will say this: it has been our goal this year, uh, much more so in the past, to try to bring into the broadcast the the experience that in this case, it would be MLS fans have of going to these stadiums and going to the games and trying to do things to really highlight and portray what is going on in terms of the day in and the day of game experience from, uh, from outside to inside to back outside. And so Rob Stone and I are going to be, uh, doing some interesting things in order to bring you the flavor and the color and the flair in this particular instance of going to a DC United game in their, uh, in their new stadium down there and the excitement and the entertainment and, as I said, the experience uh, that goes far beyond the actual 90 minutes of the game. So that's my little tease for you to tune in uh, this week. And that game's on uh, Big Fox, once again, 3 p.m. Eastern time on Saturday. Alright Mossy uh, as, it's, as it always is It was a pleasure I will say this Before I get into My one big thing uh, Being on the road It gives me an opportunity to, to, to meet a lot of Different folks out there And I am passing along In one fell swoop And, I'm, and I, I am batching them And bunching them All together The well wishes And the uh, Saludos To you That I get When I'm on the road It's always uh, You know I, I love the podcast Please say hello to Mossy um, I love the podcast uh, why is it that... Uh, say hello to Mossy. I love him, but why does he pronounce Barcelona two different ways within a single podcast? Um, it's, it's, uh, uh, is Mossy really... Uh, that uh, that incredibly intelligent when it comes to the sport, or is he just reading off of paper? Uh, and I love the podcast. So I'm passing all of those along to you. Um, people out there love you, Mossy, uh, for a number of different reasons, not the least of which is because you bring so much uh, to this show. So consider that your pat on the back and your thank you from many, many people that I have encountered on the road uh, in my travels here. So anything to say to them back?
2: No, I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for listening, and... Uh... Yeah, let's uh, keep at it.
1: Riveting as always, Mossy. Uh, okay, we finish up the pod here with our one big thing. As I said, uh, I was on the road. I had the privilege and the pleasure uh, a few days ago of being in New York City once again and being surrounded by greatness. Uh, the 1999 World Cup winning cha- uh, uh, women's team, a, a group of uh, of those women uh, came into town and then a group from the 1994 uh, men's national team from the World Cup in 1994 got together. so myself and and Tab Ramos and Tony Miola uh, and Claudio Reina. Uh, these types of uh, these types of guys got together and it was it was so much fun to hang out with these guys and to and to, to talk soccer with them. Uh, and then from the the 99ers, it was great to see the likes of Brandy Chastain and Shannon Mack and um, Christine Lilly. Uh, Kate Margraff. It was it was just wonderful to be surrounded by this collection of individuals. And there's an extended family, obviously, when it comes to these teams, because not everybody was there. But to see the people that they have become, because I grew up with them as soccer people, and I literally at times grew up with them on and off the field and traveled the world with them. Or when it comes to the women's team, they were doing the same thing from their perspective, and we were in awe um, from, from the outside, but to see the wonderful men and women that they have become, uh, but also to see the fact that they have all stayed in the game in one way or another. And I was thinking back to my national team from 1994, there's only a couple of players that that aren't in the game, uh, guys like maybe Joe Max Moore uh, or Roy Wagerly, um, but everybody else. And, and certainly when it comes to the uh, the women's team, many, many of the players uh, or former players they they've stayed involved in soccer in one way or another and yes it's something that that connects us all um and certainly connects the 99ers and the 94 uh team with that that decade that fundamentally changed the sport and I like to think helped grow the sport but that so many are still involved with the game warms my heart uh and it was fun it was fun to hang out to do a, a charity game uh, to raise money and to open up a wonderful uh, a wonderful space downtown with Street FC that redid a a, a rooftop on a high school that enables that, that will be open and enable not just the high schoolers but people to come around to play we need spaces for uh, for young kids to go that are safe uh, and that are fun they did an incredible mur- mural of uh of all of the players that were involved uh, with our 94. 94- jerseys on and our 99 jerseys on it was just really really fun to see i had a wonderful time and uh it made an old guy feel very very good not just about ourselves but also about the sport and the conversations that we had Uh, anthony de was there representing uh you know his late father and how important tony was to the sport Uh, and sitting down and having you know drinks and and meals with these these men and women and talking about the state of the sport and listening to their sides and you know we 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 argue we disagree we agree we all that all that kind of stuff but ultimately at the core it comes from a a belief that this unique thing that we call the american soccer culture continues to get bigger and better and you are part of it for listening so it was it was great and i thank everybody and i thank in particular my friend and colleague uh, over there at nbc kyle martino who organized it and um You know, he 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 gave an incredibly eloquent and wonderful speech about how important both the 94 team were and the 99 team were to him at a young age growing up uh, as a soccer player in America. So it was it was humbling and it was wonderful. And I hope we do it again because uh, these men and women deserve to be uh, to be celebrated Uh, and that they let me tag along is is that much better. So. All right, Mossy, anything before we go? Nope. All right, thank you for listening. We will be back again next week for another edition of the State of the Union podcast. We thank you so much for tuning in each and every week and listening to us regardless of what you're doing. I talked last week about the fact that some people listen to the podcast Sped Up, and I got a bunch of different responses out there uh, from people uh, that uh, that listen to it sped up. If you're listening to it sped up or at normal speed, it doesn't matter as long as you're listening to it, and we thank you for doing that. All right, we will see you next time. Size the day!